0: Hi, friends, and welcome to episode number 22 of the End of Sport podcast. Today's episode is really a very special edition because it is our first ever mailbag episode. Uh, And so first thing, thanks to everyone, uh, all of our listeners who submitted questions. Now, this was actually not supposed to be the intro of the episode. The episode itself starts with an intro. Um, So, uh, you know, prepare for that. But the reason why you're hearing me talking right now, and I'm joined by uh, my good friend and colleague, Dr. Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi. Um, and by the way, we're not joined by Derek right now, but Derek uh, is with us in the, the larger episode. Um, so don't worry, you're going to hear from Derek as well. Uh, but the reason that we're recording right now, and we're, we're recording on Sunday night, uh, really like, you know, practically 12 hours, less than 12 hours from when this episode is posted. So this is pretty current. This is pretty fresh, Uh, unlike the episode itself, which was recorded on Thursday. And I gotta tell you, like in these last four days, everything has happened in the world of sport, feels like, Uh, and with respect to a lot of the conversations that we engage in this episode. So what I wanna do quickly is just tell you what happened since we recorded, um, and then defend us uh, and say that I, I stand by all of our comments uh even though we didn't know <laughs> that these things would transpire because i think we actually had a pretty good um kind of outlook on what was taking place but in case people are like why didn't you mention the fact that the mississippi flag is now being changed because of the incredible work and the protests of kylan hill at the university of mississippi well it's because it hadn't happened yet okay so forgive us for that um, we also don't mention Kansas State University and the fact that athletes across the university, including the entire football team, have pledged that they will not play or practice until, a, until the institution develops um, policy around racism, essentially, and holding students accountable for racist acts. Um, so, you know, we talk a lot in this episode about college athlete activism. We don't talk about that rather important development because that hadn't happened yet either and the other thing that Johanna and I are actually really excited to talk about but we don't talk about yet is Athlete A the new Netflix film documentary film about Larry Nassar and USA Gymnastics Uh, and we're just bubbling over frankly with things we want to say about that film but we hadn't watched it yet so we do not really make the connections between kind of like youth sport for instance and harm things that we are talking about in this episode we don't connect those to the film we will be doing a lot of that in the coming weeks and episodes because i think correct me if i'm wrong johanna we're thinking a lot about that
1: absolutely it is 100 on our minds and as soon as we i mean bubbling is correct as soon as we individually finish watching the documentary we're like texting each other and on twitter and it just we have so many thoughts so we really cannot wait to share them with you
0: Exactly, uh, and all I can say is, please, like, if you can stomach it, because it is exceptionally painful. There's no question about it, and do not subject yourself to it, um, if, it if it's not appropriate for you. That's that's a given. But if you can, it's really well worth watching. Um, not just because, if you are not familiar with the Larry Nassar story, it it will fill you in. Uh, and I think that it's a story that we all need to know. Anyone who's interested in the world of high performance sport, sport more broadly. But it also really intersects with the themes of this podcast. If, if, if I were to say that the, like the, the predominant theme of the podcast is the question of harm in sport and in elite sport, um, it really demands that we think through a huge range of practices that athletes are subjected to um, and that are not exceptional. Even if like, the Larry Nassar case is or is not exceptional, uh, so much of what we see in that film is not and connects to all kinds of other practices that are really ubiquitous in sport and demand a reflection. Um, But also another thing we were talking about in the episode is like what's happening in the state of Florida.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, So right, so in the episode I talk about um, how cases had been skyrocketing. I think I gave um, specifics about Wednesday, this last Wednesday and Thursday, which were June 24th and 25th, if I remember correctly. Uh, Don't kill me if I got those dates wrong. Um, But on Friday, of course, Cases continued skyrocketing. I think Saturday had nine, or Friday or Saturday had 9,000 cases, so almost doubled. Um, but I also talked about how the club team, the club team that I, I genuinely do love dearly and had really great experiences there, um, they not only have been, I mentioned they have been having practices for over a month, but um, I had an, a former swim parent who told me that they had a mock swim meet on Saturday in Ocala. Ocala is like halfway between um, Orlando and and Gainesville, Florida. And I just, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, uh, the swim parent was telling me for other reasons, sort of like gossipy reasons we were chatting about, but I just could not believe. And she's telling me, you know, parents were not allowed on pool deck. The coaches had to wear masks and the swimmers and everybody had to do social distancing. But of course, you know, swimmers probably we're not wearing masks and these are like young swimmers and and they were excited to swim and it's not like people are actively telling them this is a bad idea. Um, So I just sort of wanted to throw that out there that while these cases are skyrocketing and while we're also having these huge sort of moments of um, athlete activism, that at the same time you have youth sports organizations and club teams that are holding sporting events at the same time. So I just think that's really, really important to to kind of uh, draw together these threads a bit.
0: It's painful to watch play out. Um, So, with that said, I think we won't take any more of your time, uh, except to apologize profusely to Derek for recording this behind your back, and then also subsequently requiring you to add it to the episode at the very last minute. Uh, Sorry, Derek, (laughs) uh, but there you go. It is what it is. Enjoy, folks. Listen, um, Eric and Johanna, how are how are the pandemic conditions, uh, uprisings, everything treating you uh, in London, Ontario, and King of Prussia, Pennsylvania?
2: Well, uh, the, in London, the, in terms of the the pandemic, the cases are really low. seem Things seem to be opening up for good uh, or for bad. Um, London is also like this really sort of um, white, kind of conservative area of London or of Ontario. So. Um, in terms of like the, the uprisings and the rebellion, like I'm actually, it's been nice to see some actual movement, some, some protests, some um, people getting out and, and protesting white supremacy and racial violence. Um, so it's, it's actually been like pretty nice to see overall. And I, I do like when the case counts are at like one or two per day. Um, it seems to be, um, it's going the opposite way of my colleague or the people down to the, to the south of us.
0: Yeah. Don't remind me about that. Uh, Joanna, <laughs> how about you, Johanna?
1: Yeah. So things are okay here. So we, um, let's see. So I mentioned this in my episode, but our governor, um, Governor Wolf had like locked down the state pretty quickly and especially my County. And so they've done sort of this like three phase, like three phases of opening and pretty much the rest of the state is in like the green phase, which is like the final phase where pretty much things are open but everyone has to wear masks. And I think, you know, restaurants can only have so many uh, people in the restaurants. They need to be sitting outside. That's stuff like that. Um, We are moving into the green phase like early next week. So for example, like salons will be opening and people can go to malls and stuff like that. Um, So we haven't quite seen the like we've seen like a slight rise in cases, but nothing like what you're seeing. And like Florida and Texas and other places. And actually I pulled some information on what's going on in Florida. So when we talk about uh, plans to sort of start back up with the NBA in Orlando, I have some, some sort of information about that for us. Um, but so I'm, I'll be interested to sort of see what happens there um, like once we're in the green phase, but people here are still being really careful. Um, There's still is a lot of protests going on downtown Philly. Um, there was um, right when the protests first started, Um, there were like these, there were, there's this famous sort of incident where the Philly police um, tear gassed a bunch of protesters, like on a hill on the side of a highway. And they, the protesters were essentially trapped like on this hill. It was really awful. And so like, I think today um, the police admitted that kind of what they did was like wrong and a mistake. And so like, you know, we still sort of have these like, Real conflict sort of between the protesters and the police are still coming down pretty hard about it. Um, so that's been really interesting and scary, but also kind of promising to sort of see still pe- people still wanting to go out and protest and stuff like that.
2: Nathan, how about in, in Durham? How are things going in Durham?
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm not, I'm not um, coming into kind of contact with people on a regular basis. So, so I'm mostly here at home. Um, with my family, with my little one. Um, and we go out into the forest kind of daily. That's sort of our routine for a good chunk of time. So we kind of can steer clear of people. Um, so, you know, things are kind of status quo for us, but certainly what it seems like in the area is that people have been sort of taking the reopening very literally. Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, this is this is the larger question, but my my vantage point on this is we are exactly where we were. About, you know, whatever, nearly three months ago, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of the numbers in the South, um, this crisis is as bad or worse as when we locked everything down. But now we have, I mean, for me, it just, it feels like this is an incredible exercise for anyone in sort of seeing the social construction, for instance, of science and medicine play out in front of us. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Literally, people are acting as if these sort of protocols that are developed on the fly and then politicized and massively altered by political operatives who have no interest in epidemiology or public health in the first place, right? But even the, the, the um, scientists, doctors, epidemiologists who are developing these protocols in the first place, right? I mean, they're doing the best that they can with new information uh, and then longstanding public health protocols and traditions. And um, so, in other words, the recommendations we get for how we should operate and live our lives are... A best guess in these circumstances, right? And right. when they say a 14-day right. quarantine, that doesn't mean that like no one is shedding the virus beyond 14 days. That's just wrong. Yeah. That's not a fact. No one, yeah. no one in the medical yeah. community actually believes that's true. But like that enters our popular imagination, right? And we start to act yeah. as if, oh, you're safe after 14 days, no problem. Six, right. what is it? Six feet? In a, six feet, fine. Oh, you're social distancing now, no problem, right? Yeah. Um, but it's all made up. And so now we yeah. have this system exactly, and Johanna, you're taking us through like the different phases, right? That these states are going through and the stages of lockdown and all that. But again, it's like the, the numbers don't match that in like, a state like North Carolina. Right. We shouldn't be, we should be locking down further. We shouldn't be opening up, but people feel because they're getting the instruction from on high that it must be acceptable. And so, right. and we're going to have this incredible cost to that. Right? I mean, like yet yeah, th- yeah. this further tragedy is now unfolding. Around us, um, so you know, I mean, it's not affecting me currently in my day to day life, really, which has persisted in the same way as it has for months. But you know, it's going to affect all of us in these really profound ways, um, and we want to yeah, get I mean, into more of them. Oh, go please, go, Joanna, go ahead. Yeah,
1: no, I was just going to say, sort of back to what you were saying. People are like craving these absolutes, right? Like two weeks. Um, you know, six feet, right. They sort of, because of all the uncertainty, they sort of want like clear cut, like facts about what they can and can't do. But like you said, they're just creating them based off of the little data that they're able to gather. And it's, and yeah, just cause we're opening up, there's like a converse, like fluctuation in terms of we, you know, we, we think we're safe. We think that we flatten the curve. Like there was that, there was that graph going around today that was like, this is what it means when the U S is like flatten the curve. And it's just, it's like a straight line like a plateau of cases, whereas like Europe and the EU is like <laughs> right. actually, you know, like really flatten the curve. Um, but people don't want to believe that. Right. They just want to go back and everything to be like sunshine and rainbows. So.
2: Yeah. It's like, the, it's all to me. It's a, it highlights like hypocrisy of, of people for the most part, like so many people, especially to the neighbors of the South and in, in Canada, like want less government, want less like governmental power, like in, in their lives but then they want like absolute like rules given to them by government and they will follow them to a T. like it just makes no sense yeah you're right you're
0: absolutely right uh and so look we're gonna get into this in terms of sport we're gonna we're gonna get to your like we're excited about the mailbag and we really appreciate the questions we're gonna treat um we're gonna deal with that in the latter part of the episode um you know i don't actually know how long this episode is gonna take so I, i can't really tell you if it's the last half or more um There's going to be a little ranting before we get to that. I'm going to warn you about that. Um, (laughs) But even before we get to the ranting, actually, Johanna, your episode was released very recently um, and uh, earlier this week that we're recording on. And um, I'm just I'm curious kind of if you've had any feedback about it. You shared some pretty personal um, stories and realities about your experiences with harm and and sexual violence and harassment in sport. Uh, I'm curious sort of what that was like for you to kind of share that and if you got any feedback about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So today the we're recording is uh, the twenty fifth of June, and the uh, the episode was, was released on Monday. And we originally recorded it like end of May, I think. Um, so there was a little bit of lag time between when we recorded it and when we released it. And it was something that you know I thought of, thought about doing for a long time, but just never really knew like the right outlet or sort of how to do it. And I thought like, oh, I'll write something one day, but like the writing itself was really daunting. Um, so it just kind of felt like the right moment, but I was still really fearful of like backlash, even though, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to name names. I knew that nothing that I was going to share was going to be, and it wasn't like abuse. It wasn't like the stuff we hear in the news per se, but I was still like really worried because most of the people that kind of did this stuff are like, like me in their thirties, mid to late thirties, like very much like they're they're building their careers, um, or they're like kind of coaches towards the middle and end of their career. So they're still like active coaches, um, but you know it's been like, I mean Monday was a bit of a roller coaster just because I was like really nervous on how people are gonna how people are gonna respond. Is it gonna be taken positively and seriously? Is it gonna be seen as oversharing? Um, but you know it was it was really, it was really, it's been really like a positive thing because I had so many like former teammates reach out to me and just sort of say like, I'm so glad that you said something. I've been thinking about this for years or like, you know, Oh, I've been talking about this with so-and-so and we've been recalling this and just like people kind of sharing their experiences. Some of the stuff that I remembered, some stuff that I had, I didn't remember at all until they told me. Um, and so it was just like really affirming to kind of hear that. I mean, of course it was sad to sort of hear about stuff that they went through, of course, but I think it just ended up kind of being like this unexpected community building thing. I mean, I was getting Facebook messages. I was getting messages on Twitter from people that I didn't even know who were reaching out to me, thanking me for sharing things and kind of sharing things they've been to. I had friends reach out on Instagram DM that, you know, I I maybe will get like a clap or like a heart, you know, response to like a DM, but you know, nothing much more than that. So it's, it's actually been really positive and really like affirming, like this was the right choice and also just kind of opened up a lot of discussion. And I think some healing like i was telling um a Mm -hmm. mentor that i think it's it's been kind of a healing thing at least so far i'm still kind of uh waiting for the ball to drop in a sense just because that's kind of how my mind um works but yeah it's been really positive so that's just been really amazing
0: i'm so happy to hear that that's yeah that's the best possible um scenario so i'm thrilled and and for folks who are interested in hearing more about this because we really we i mean for you personally, we certainly didn't scratch the surface like we went to a very personal place, but it was only a short portion of that episode. Um, and in fact, um, Derek and Johanna had the chance to have a terrific conversation um, with a special guest who I won't name, I'm going to tease, but I'm not going to name, um, which will be coming out very shortly on the larger, con- on larger topic of um, sexual violence and harassment in sports. So that's something for folks to look out for, um, because I think that you're going to find that to be quite a powerful episode.
1: Yeah, actually, I wanted to say one more thing that my, my DMs are still open. Like if people still want to message me and sort of talk about it or, or sort of share things or show appreciation, like they are definitely open. I'm definitely um, happy to kind of talk about that stuff with people. So the conversation is not over is sort of all I'm, I'm trying to say here.
0: Awesome. Well, we talked about what's happening in this, in, I'm going to say this country right now, because look, we're not all in the same boat anymore. Right. There was a moment where, you know, like country after country was kind of going through the pandemic crisis and evaluating how they were going to handle it. Try to, as you put it, Johanna, flatten the curve. Um, And, you know, there were different strategies, but like it kind of felt like the world, you know, not not at the exact same rate, but like the whole world was kind of experiencing the same calamity. But now the United States is in a different situation than a lot of the world. Um, And that's uh, not really a surprise to, I think, any of us because it was. Incredibly clear from the beginning that the choices that this country's administration making were not going to protect people from a pandemic, and that was not an accident. That was a, con- a consequence of you know years of destruction of public health institutions, destruction of the CDC, um, you know, just systematically destroying the capacity to respond to a crisis that was almost inevitable, right, and has been understood as such. For decades, Um, Mm -hmm. so you know this isn't an accident that we're experiencing. Um, It's by design, in a certain sense, and by negligence as well. And and so the United States is in a almost unique kind of situation now, where we are facing an incredibly uncertain and dangerous future. And so that affects you know everyone in this country in all kinds of different and asymmetrical ways. But it certainly affects the world of sport, as we well know, and as we've been dealing with from the beginning in this show. Um, And look recent weeks are just you know been making my blood boil i mean that's the bottom line it's like one and i feel like i'm on twitter all the time now just it's just one announcement after another that makes me want (laughs) to throw my phone right like just rage out um major league baseball has decided you know screw that bubble idea because you know florida florida doesn't seem safe and you know clearly arizona is not safe either here's what we'll do we'll just become disease vectors for the entire nation by hosting yeah. events in, in the actual host cities of these teams. Not just that. Guess what? Feeling, feeling safe up there in Canada, Derek? Don't worry. <laughs> Don't worry. The Blue Jays will get a special waiver, and you'll get Americans crossing that border that you, you weren't expecting thanks to, thanks to Major League Baseball. So, you know, we're going to be spreading that virus right back up your way as well. Um, mm-hmm. Right? seeing that. We're seeing the NBA with their supposedly ironclad bubble, um, but amazingly pushback from players, which has been really impressive to to see, right? Articulating the fact that, in fact, no one is safe in this context. Um, Basically, we're seeing sport after sport where athletes are being diagnosed with the virus, right? Because the society is reopening and athletes are coming into contact with other human beings. And that means they're getting the virus because that's what's happening to everyone in the United States who's coming into contact with other human beings.
1: Absolutely.
0: And you know who's no exception to that? College athletes. Yeah. <laughs> College athletes at universities like the University of Michigan, who recently announced that they would be withdrawing from hosting a, a national presidential debate. Well, that's a pretty big deal. That seems like that was a pretty important event, right? They're not willing to engage in that debate months in the future. They're not willing to have that on campus. That's dangerous. But you know what's not dangerous? Yeah having college athletes on campus right this very moment because they are there right now. <laughs> they're there right now. And they're being subjected to virus conditions right now in the so-called voluntary workouts, right? Which we know, of course, yeah. are not in any way, shape, or form voluntary. Um, and listen, I got, I got to share a tweet that um, was delivered today by a friend of the show, Derek Helling, okay? At D. Helling Sports, if you want to follow, follow him on Twitter. And he tweeted today at uh, Coach Franklin at Pennsylvania State University, coach of the football team at good old Penn State, in your state there, Johanna. Uh, Mm -hmm. He said, Coach Franklin, to recruit's parents, I'm going to care for your sons as though they were my own. Also, Coach Franklin, all you players have to assume risks that I'm shielding my real family from, or you'll lose your scholarship. Hashtag (laughs) Shamateurism. Guess what? Guess what? Coach Franklin and his people reached out to Derek Helling after that tweet. Oh, Oh, wow. Yeah, that tweet was liked by, at the time, about two people. had about two likes on it. Okay? What that tells me, this is what I want to say. What what that tells me is these college football coaches who, and Derek puts this perfectly, right? They talk about family. They talk about this as if these players are their family. And they're going to care for them like family. That's what Mike Gundy says in Oklahoma State as he's talking about running money through the state of Oklahoma. That's what Dabo Sweeney says as he also says that you should should kick people out of the country who take a knee to protest racism as he said in 2016 to paraphrase. These coaches though talk about their players, their black players as if they're members of the family and yet when it comes to a moment like this they are going to subject those players to this virus and they're going to They're going to reach out on Twitter to people who criticize them for it. And what that tells me is that that's essentially a Freudian slip, as far as I'm concerned. Because when people criticize me, when people troll me on Twitter, to be honest, like, for the most part, I'm pretty confident in what I'm saying. And it rolls right off my back. Because if they criticize it, I think, well, you disagree. You don't see this the same way I do. And it doesn't really matter to me that I didn't, like, make a winning comment, right? That won you over. But the fact that someone like Coach Franklin would be so uncomfortable with being called out this directly, that he'd have it handled, in a sense, right, or have someone try to handle it, that tells me that there is some kind of deep and abiding guilt and understanding of what they are doing, what they are complicit in doing right now. Um, And and that's disgusting, because they're not doing anything about it other than release Black Lives Matter solidarity statements. So that's the thing that's really firing me up. Um, But just one more thing, because I will cede the floor here in a second. But the the one other thing in this rant is as bad and as ugly as the kind of NCAA establishment has been in this moment in subjecting young people that we are charged with nurturing this incredible harm of this virus. The response of the athletes has been amazing. And unlike anything We have seen before, and it honestly, I, I, am not, I can't be hyperbolical about this. I'm like the constant pessimist trying to rain on every parade. I am not going to rain excuse me on the college athlete resistance parade, because yeah. when Kylan Hill, running back at Mississippi State University, says he's not going to play for that flag this fall until it's changed, that is amazing.
1: That's amazing. That's amazing. Right
0: that is courage. When, when Chuba yeah. Hubbard speaks up Chub- against yeah. Mike Gundy, yeah. this infamous coach who supports OAN, who supports running money through the state of Oklahoma, right? I mean, who is like, you know, just as, about as close to white supremacy as you can be without saying it explicitly. But he calls him out on Twitter, right? That's powerful. That's hard. That's scary. That's dangerous stuff. And the last example I just want to provide right now, because of the one I'm even more impressed with are the folks on the football team at UCLA, Uh, for anyone who has not seen. The players at UCLA have demanded that a third-party health official be on hand for all football activities to see that protocols for COVID-19 prevention are being followed. This is me reading from a Los Angeles Times story. That anonymous whistleblower protections are provided for athletes and staff to report violations. And that each player can make a decision about whether to come back to Westwood without fear of losing his scholarship or other retaliation. That is real and meaningful reform. Okay. That's not tokenistic solidarity statement reform. That is like really changing how college sport is operating today. The current, the current system. Um, And I just, you know, I, I can do nothing, but, um, congratulate them for their incredible leadership and bravery.
1: I mean, they're, they're calling that bluff on the whole family stuff, right? Like they're saying, like basically saying, if you actually do consider me to be family, like allow us to bring in outside people to care for our health. Cause you're clearly not, at least that's how I kind of saw it.
2: Right before this, this, uh, before we we went on, I watched Nick Saban. So Alabama just released a video um, on um, in response to Black Lives Matter protests and and the, the the widespread social upheaval against white supremacy and racialized police violence, and like to me this he, on Twitter he's getting like a bunch of kudos like Nick Saban oh yeah I didn't expect this from Nick Saban like oh I, I didn't expect him to come out and say like all lives matter uh, don't all lives can't matter until Black Lives Matter do like yeah it's it's great and they're, like he's playing like he's definitely saying the things that you would want someone to say. But when you look at the history of this person as a coach and as someone who has exploited racial, like racialized people to make $11 million a year uh, for the past 20 years or however long, it it falls completely flat. And this like rhetoric that like these coaches are in it um, to support young athletes and athletic laborers is completely it's bogus it does it, it's it's only there and i will on record here go to call out nick Sabe and say he's only doing this to ensure his next recruitment class is strong he that is the only reason that he's doing at at this moment in time so when i see this stuff like i see the family rhetoric coming out in that world well we want to protect all of our uh all of our uh, athletes uh, because their family it's it's bullshit there's always something more there's something deeper to that that story and to me it's it's they are self-interested and they want to ensure that they're on the right side of history so that recruits keep coming and and derek if you want to at Nick Saban on Twitter, uh, and perhaps get, get a
0: response <laughs> from that athletic department. Um, they can take it up with us on the show, uh, live to oh. air, because uh, we're happy to have that conversation.
2: yeah uh, no, I would love. FYI, yeah, Nick, come on the show. Yeah, come on the show, and then we'll we'll get at it then. Yeah,
1: um, That's <laughs> It seems convention. to me that
2: it seems to me that the U.S. is as a as an entire political cultural system is moving towards like this race for herd immunity but they don't give a shit about a vaccine vaccine is nothing to them they just want everyone to get infected that's what they want
0: the herd immunity thing Derek. the herd immunity thing is i'm i'm seriously concerned there's literature being released that suggests that this like the the immunity is potentially quite short term i mean i like i'm not i'm not here to be like <laughs> alarmist because I don't know anything but like the published studies exist that suggest it might be based on what is known yeah. pretty short yeah. months yeah right more like the flu essentially right like i mean yeah. what we're used to yeah. so yeah that's that makes no sense as a strat that's not a yeah. strategy that's just more yeah. magical thinking basically
1: to kind of look at it from a different angle is that it's interesting of course that like we all know that universities and colleges are struggling financially big time mm-hmm. right they've all lost millions of millions of dollars um they m- money that they are not able to make up through like you know the cares act and other grants and stuff like that. Meanwhile, the ones who have sent these athletes back, right. That have started practicing again, they're having to spend money right on housing these athletes and, and testing them right. if they're actually testing them, but also of course paying these salaries for the coaches. And so yeah. places like Ohio university that announced like massive layoffs after they already laid off like hundreds of, of like what non tenure track faculty, I think a couple months ago, but yet their yeah. coaches salaries are enormous. And the athletes' bodies are the ones that are at risk. And it's kind of like, but we yeah. know the, 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 the research, the literature shows that not many schools actually make money off these sports programs. So it's just like yeah. wasting dollars, wasting these athletes' bodies for, for what? Um, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in there.
0: Yes. And you know what? That, that's perfect. Because here's the, resp- here's the response then from uh, a great friend of the show. Dr. Victoria Jackson. Uh, and we, we spoke to Dr. Victoria Jackson uh, and Andy Schwartz in an earlier episode about the lie of amateurism. So please do check that out. Uh, you always want to hear what she has to say. And we agree, I would say, like, uh, I personally feel that I agree with uh, Dr. Jackson on the vast majority of what she has to say, although I'm going to make my own addendum at the end. Um, but I mean, what she's saying is desperately needed. So I, I am a huge advocate of what she's saying here. In the Boston Globe, do so you want to wanna check this out? In an op-ed just published in the, uh, the Boston Globe, Dr. Jackson writes, if American universities really are sincere about being part of the solution to ending racism in our country, they should call off the fall football season. As colleges release statements expressing their commitment to developing anti-racism initiatives and curriculums addressing institutional racism and police and criminal justice reform, they should take a break this fall and turn inward to conduct an honest appraisal of the role their football programs play in perpetuating injustice and inequality. The system of intercollegiate athletics isn't working. Schools need to stop fighting to preserve a rotten model that takes advantage of young black men and their talents. Uh, And she goes on from there, um, just as persuasively. um, That's just sort of reading you the lead. But her point is clear. The season needs to be canceled to protect these athletes. And there needs to be a really a reformulation. She has written extensively in the past. Um, she, unlike me, she actually offers uh, alternative models that might, we might pursue. Um, and so she, <laughs> she's got, she has a lot of great ideas about how you could perhaps not just like reform in a tokenistic way, but like really change the system to address a lot of the shortfalls that we talk about on the show all the time, such as, you know, the, the complete failure to provide the education as compensation that we're supposed to provide, the issues with compensation and name, image and likeness in general. Um, issues around bodily harm right lack of unionization organization all of that she's addressing all of that meaningfully Um, and so that's where um, I I agree with her completely in in this intervention the only place I said that I would slightly disagree um, is that I always want to go further Um, and kind of like with this discussion we're having about do do you um, do do defund the police do you reform the police or do you abolish the police? If we're talking about college football, I just want to be clear I'm on the record. I think people probably realize this about me, but I mean, for me, the only answer is abolish college football. There's no act like it's not easy. The university was universities would suffer immensely. The athletes who have invested so much in their lot of their lives to the sport would suffer. I think in the short term, it would be a very difficult emotional and material um, challenge, but. Uh, essentially, we need to abolish college, abolish college football and we need to provide some kind of reparations then for the students, or the, the athletes who have invested so much of their lives in this sport. Right? It's not fair to just kick them to the curb. We have to, universities actually have to give back to those people that they have taken so much from up to this point already. But as far as I can say, if we have a problem with subjecting athletes of any kind, but our student athletes to pandemic conditions, we should have a problem with them ever. Playing football on our campuses because it's a different affliction, but it is completely commensurate in terms of the human cost that we are subjecting these people to. It just comes in a different form. And there, for me, there is absolutely no way of reforming that system.
2: So now that everyone who is like a college football fan has turned off this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I like, I, I think we are maybe at least you and I in agreement. Uh, like I used, I used to be a, a strong college football fan, um, and uh, I've increasingly moved on board with the abolish college football because it, there's no making, there's no coming back from how from from this. I think in college football, and there's no coming back to to. That at the end of the day, you're always subjecting these athletes to harm. If it's not a COVID-19 pandemic, it's a pandemic of mental health, of physical health, of uh, of brain and head trauma, and that will never be lost.
1: I would say I've never, ever been a fan of football, <laughs> so I am totally down with just burning it all down. Um, I would say I, I've never watched a whole football game all the way through. I always just kind of thought it was violent, so I have literally no stake in the game. Um, I mean, even, I didn't even like tailgating outside when I was at University of Florida mm-hmm. in part, cause I have like an alcohol allergy. So the heat always really got to me. And then also just, you know, it's, it's predominantly, you know, like white students drinking and getting drunk and entertaining themselves while predominantly black bodies are, um, being hit over and over again. So, you know, and then once all the CTE stuff came out, it just really was like, oh, well, I, I, I never, I never really, I never want to watch it. It's just so I'm, I'm totally on board with this. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think in terms of the bodies and the minds that have been lost and it's not only like the right, it's not only the athletes lives, it's like their families and what they pass down to their kids and their grandkids, mm-hmm. right. It's, it's, it's so generational. Um, so it's not even just about the players.
0: That is such a great point, Johanna. There's a terrific sociologist of sport, Dina Simonetto, who does work on, not football, but hockey players. And it's exactly the issue you're talking about, Johanna. It's the question of families, the impact on families of this kind of harm. And she looks at qualitative interviews and we are gonna have to have her, uh, this is a (laughs) warning shot to her. We have to have her on the show at some point um, because really those are exceptionally important conversations. I think you're exactly right about that. Um, So listen, I, I apologize to folks Uh, You didn't ask me a question about college football. Okay. So I had to (laughs) ask myself because I needed to talk about it today. Um, Well,
1: transparency.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Okay. But listen, the questions we got, fabulous questions and questions that really. Yes. Thank you everyone. Yes. Thank you. Your questions expose the holes in this show. There are areas we have not engaged and that has said a lot about, especially for Derek and I, um, for, for most of the time, you know, the, the things that we have been most preoccupied with, but that there are, there are gaps there and, and there are things that we should be addressing. So one thing is, look, this is a provisional first attempt for us to start to think through some of these issues that, that you folks have raised. Um, but we're also certainly planning in the future um, to be engaging these much more robustly in full episodes with people who know more than we do about um, sort of how to think them through in the most sophisticated way possible and, the, and the kind of giving them the, the full treatment and justice that they deserve. So. Just kind of a warning about that. We're going to give up because I think we'd love to talk about, start talking about these issues, um, but this isn't the end of those conversations. This is just going to be the beginning. So here we go. We're dipping in the mailbag. Um, And first questions, I'm going to call it a, it's kind of a bit of a two for one um, because it's a great, it's a, we're talking about the topic of youth sports, something that we really have not engaged yet. And and it's actually going to be a topic of one of the next couple episodes that we air, one of the next few episodes we air. Um, So it's great timing for that. So the first question is from, um, and again, I so, I so apologize for name pronunciation. I, I truly have no idea. Uh, but we have uh, Jean-Marie Mayer via Twitter asks, I'd love to hear your thoughts on youth sport during these times. Um, and just as an example, Minnesota is restarting youth sport as of July 1st. And then we also have from Dr. Doug Gardner via Twitter, um, with attempts to return, pro and college sports have, quote unquote, protocols and the ability to test. High school and youth sports don't. Yet the push to return poses a very large risk for kids who have little to say. Parents and adults are leading the charge. What role can minors play in advocating for themselves? Um, those are great questions. Um, so
2: I have some thoughts here, but let me tell let me to, to you guys, what do you think? Well, well I, for one, I think it's, it's simply far too early and shouldn't even be a thought right now in terms of opening up um, youth sport and sport in general um, in North America, particularly because we're still in the middle of a pandemic. And, th- and I, I want to stress like in the middle of the first wave and this first wave is accelerating in certain places. So it's just far too early and shouldn't even be thought right now, at least not in ways that, that youth sport is typically understood in practice. Like yes, um, outside, like uh, you picture um um young people playing soccer or something outside. Yes, being outside lowers the risk of infection. Yes, you can be physically distant outdoors to an extent, but like, can we actually imagine a context a context where kids are running around? Um, and actually, staying physically distant from one another, like these little kind of vectors of disease, who probably will, or who have a, a, an increased likelihood of, of being asymptomatic, and you know, sharing uh, like I don't know, touching each other if, if that's the case. I imagine if they're playing soccer, they'd they'd run by one another, and they're like, let's be honest, like young bodies are vectors of this disease. So it's not the young kids that i'd be worried about it's when they go home and when they mingle outside of playing sports and maybe they go see a grandparent or maybe they pass the disease to someone else who goes and sees a grandparent you'll never know where the disease flows from that so i just think in terms of restarting like we should be more than hesitant um to like we should be so cautious here in what we're doing and really think about the value of sport yes it's there but like the risks that we're putting or we're bringing into society are are far worse and like i've been thinking about this a lot that many youth sports and organizations they are not money-making machines like yes youth sport is a billion-dollar industry in Canada and billions probably in the United States. It's a huge, massive thing. Many people's livelihoods rely on the operation of youth sport. And by saying that it shouldn't be back, you're putting all of that in jeopardy. And as we open up, like, I, I understand. But I think that this is where governmental intervention comes in. Like, these sports leagues are absolutely hurting. Youth sports leagues are absolutely hurting. People are out of jobs. People are out of... People, you know, young people going out and buying shin pads or soccer boots or whatever it is they need they need for engaging in these in these sports and like many of them are collapsing Um, and that's where government needs to come in like in Canada here we basically have like an alternative to a a universal um, like a UBI in, in the form of the Canada emergency response benefit. That's like paying people who are out of work due to COVID um, throughout this. Like we need as a society to fund these young sports leagues um, so that they can survive and that they can eventually come back. Like everyone's rushing to get back in while we're in the middle of an accelerating pandemic. Like people think that people think this pandemic wave has passed um but like any of you like we can all open up our browser and see each day in the united states there are more covid cases than the last it's accelerating because people won't stay home that's at the at the end of the day people will not stay home um so like it seems to me like a lot of adults are putting more pressure on returning than anyone else and that's because of the stakes Um, Like even youth sport is a big money industry in North America. And like, there's a lot of uh, adults putting pressure on young people to join. And like, you think a nine year old, 10 year old is going to say like, no, I don't want to go play soccer with my friend. They might not be in the best situation to like speak out and advocate for themselves. And that's why the question from Doug Gardner was so important is, and I don't know, Like if I have an answer to that, like what role can minors play in advocating for themselves? So like, I'll leave that to you because I have no idea.
1: I'll sort of pick up where you, what you were talking about, Derek, and sort of um, talk about swimming because that's kind of the case that I know and talk a little bit about Florida because I know after living there for so long. um, So my old uh, club team that I coached for for like two years, um, they started practice up again. I look at their Twitter on May 13th was when they started having they started social- practicing
0: on may thirteenth
1: may thirteenth oh my lord they have they have um a, tw- a tweet and, and you know i I'm still on very good like this is this is not just this team and I'm still on very good terms with that coach actually, I interviewed him as part of my research, but that's another story um but this tweet is um who else missed the sound of some practice. Two question marks. Happy to have some small socially distanced groups starting at the YMCA pool today and working to get more in the water as soon as we can. Um, And, you know, this is a long time ago. And, um, you know, it's interesting, too. I follow some people on Facebook. I follow like a Florida swimming page. And of course they've been all about like, when can we get in the water again? And everyone talking about how much they're missing swimming and they showed, this must have been in early April. They showed, shared a video of a high school swimmer who had bought like a a pool, somehow bought some kind of like infinity pool. You know, one of the ones that's really small, but like the water keeps going. So you sort of, you like swim in place, but you're being pushed back by the water. And it was like, look how entrepreneurial or like, look how ambitious and, and dedicated the swimmer is. He bought this pool for $500 and he also like, you know, he figured out how to do a whole swim practice in this pool by himself. And he had attached, um. Oh, I forgot what it was called. Um, attached, um, like a, like a bungee cord. It's not a bungee cord, but these like cords we used to use to, to build up our arm strength. He had like attached it around his waist and like tied it to the, the other end of the pool to kind of pull him back. So we had some resistance training, resistance bands. That's what's, that's what they're called. Um, and anyways, all these people were like, Oh, look how ingenious he is. Da How ambitious. And I'm like, $500 is half of the check that the government was giving to people, like who has this money? And of course, this is swimming, which is a, a predominantly a white sport, predominantly a wealthy sport. So it's not at all surprising, but I'm like, why are we propping this up? Is like, look how amazing this is. Like, what kind of messages is this giving? Um, and, you know, I was talking to an old swim parent about, you know, should should her daughter go back to practice? Should she not? Da, 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 da. And, you know, it, it really is up to, unfortunately, up to the parents. Yeah. To really encourage like have these open conversations about consent with their kids in general, consent in all manner of the term, right? Consent means so many sure. things it can be used in so many different ways to for, for young people to protect themselves, but also to talk through with them, like what are the implications of going back to practice and what are the payoffs and what do you, what do you what do you fear that you're risking, and how can we sort of talk through that? These conversations need to be serious and they need to be had but you know most parents care about winning and and this is not to say what this parent cared about that's not what our conversation was about but i think most of them care about it and also you know if a, if, a, if a if an athlete really wants to go to practice that's obviously going to cause conflict if as a parent you say i don't think this is a good idea let's talk it through um, so I think also parents are, you know, they don't they're all home at the same time with their kids. The kids are kind of going nuts, they're not able to go to go to school and see their friends. And so allowing them to kind of go to practice or whatever is a way for, you know, a kid to kind of win one over. But I think parents, they need to be strong. They need to have these really open conversations about sort of long time results versus sort of short short time, I don't want to say pleasures, but you know, sort of short short time gains um but i think if you don't like empower your children to like have these really honest and frank conversations then they're not going to know to do that anyways and they're not going to know to question what is the coach doing what is the team doing is this okay for me is it okay for other people um so that's sort of my like long-winded sort of answer to both these questions
2: no that's i think you ra- you raise a really interesting point of like and something i hadn't really thought of too much until you were you were speaking but like who gets to go back to sport and who gets to go back to sport where it's less risky for them? Like, and and, I'm like, who gets to like have public health measures who gets to like have like the context where they feel safe and who doesn't like, there's a layer of privilege here that we also should like highlight as we move to returning to play and restarting play like which sports leagues and which types of sports are able to run with public health measures there and which people are like safe when they're engaging in those sports um yeah and again I don't think I have I don't think I have answers to that yeah um, let me let
1: me actually <laughs> let me actually add one more thing about the Florida thing so Florida opened up pretty early um let me just give some numbers here so today today is June 25th they had 5,004 new cases mm. today. Yeah. There was the second single highest day total in the entire pandemic. Their first highest was yesterday. It's accelerating. Had, it's accelerating. Okay. Meanwhile, in and, and yeah. Pennsylvania, we only had 579 new yeah. cases today. And I'm like right outside a city, a major city. Yeah. Um. So, you know, Florida's, I mean, and this isn't a surprise and everyone always jokes about Florida, but and I could talk about it all day, but, you know, it's all about it's all conservative politics and money. And that's how Disney's run. That's how sports run. That's how, you know, everything is run down there. Just a sort of like a microcosm of, like, capitalism gone gone wild. Um, so that's, you know, some facts about Florida. Well, no, that's the thing. And
0: we got we to gotta understand, because you were talking about the threat to kids, Derek. The truth is, first, we don't know almost anything with the long-term impacts, right, of for sure of this mm-hmm. illness and it seems very clear actually increasingly that there are all kinds of complications that people are going to yeah. experience so yeah. kids are in danger for that kids are also in danger for some very significant um, seeming complications that were noted especially in new yeah. york state um yeah. and are very yeah. hard so i just want to also highlight right that the state of florida for all the reasons you've just been describing johanna like the state of florida is explicitly endangering its children in this process we like we, sh- we shouldn't kind of just say listen there's a kind of an indirect threat here that children will be vectors of disease i mean yeah. the children themselves yeah. are at risk and so these authority figures and these organizations etc i mean they are accountable for the harm yeah. they are subjecting the, the state's children to but the next thing is this for me because i think you both really answer these questions beautifully and since this isn't something we have talked about really at all on this show so far I just want to make a couple of comments about youth sport in general, because here's the thing. We have this sort of fetishized idea that youth sport equals good, right? I mean, I just, it's just like, I, I've been to conferences, I've been to North American Society for the Sociology of Sport Conference, where, you know, we had guest speakers talking about how, as a just assumed good, increasing
2: participation in youth sport.
0: That's an inherent yeah. good,
2: and that's wow. what I- socialization it teamwork gives you leadership skills, tangible skills for the workplace, all those things right, and also that your
1: way, academic conference
2: that's what I'm talking about, yes, exactly. I had that, wow.
1: our academic wow. conference
0: um, and one piece of that I gotta say obesity epidemic discourse, okay, which is to say fat phobia uh translated into like a kind of medicalization and so what we see as a consequence of that is this notion that got to keep the kids fit. Right. Mm-hmm. Cause otherwise they're going to become obese quote unquote, thanks to like the BMI and other bullshit metrics and therefore be unhealthy <laughs> essentially. Tell me um, how you really feel. Yeah, always. <laughs> um, and right. That's, that's, I mean, that's deeply problematic in its own right. And that's like a, I think actually that's a question we should really take up the way in which, you know, we have a yeah. system of like one of truly one of the most continues to be one of the absolute most accepted forms of discrimination continues to be um, fat phobia in our society and that's like fat people are subjected to abuse in every sphere of our society including to the doc including the doctor's office right where they don't receive actual care because every doctor diagnoses them with being fat as the problem they have which is not in fact the problem that they have and so youth sport is seen as a quote-unquote remedy to that aspect of human existence. Uh, And in fact, like an actually existing type of human body, which is, in fact, very often as healthy as other types of human bodies. Um, So that's one piece, because I think that one thing that that happens then is that organizations like the NFL and football, like the kind of football industrial complex, will then, as a consequence of that, say, actually, football is good for kids. It's healthy for kids because it helps them not get fat basically. And literally, that's, that's literally the justification that they use. Um, so we have to absolutely push back on, I think, just the inherent idea, the, the idea that it is inherently good for kids to participate in youth sport. One reason is that argument. Another reason, you were getting at this, Derek, so all these other arguments that are trotted out, right, about teamwork and all that stuff. But for me, like, and, and you know, a lot of this is anecdotal for me, but as a, a father of a young child, look, I'm a really competitive person. I was socializing competitive. I'm re- <laughs> really competitive. I, I, anyone who knows me would be like, well, he, he better like, at least acknowledge that, okay? Because that, that's a fact about me. I am competitive. But if I'm going to be political and scholarly about competition, competition is deeply insidious and corrupting and harmful. And when I yeah. see young yeah. children learning to be competitive, what I see is young children learning to be antisocial at the same time like literally childhood games are destroyed by the notion like who, who went down the slide first i did i won and the other kid is like i hate losing and now they can't play together anymore like literally you just see it it's so basic but like literally they can't even play together anymore because it's so destructive okay. to the impulses like before that the kids love playing together right because actually like the, the impulse to collaboration and community and togetherness is so strong in so many people. And it like it brings out the best in kids, but if you introduce competition into that, it destroys it, it's toxic, it ruins it. And honestly, we can't lose sight of that because capitalism itself is fueled by competition, right? So teaching our kids as if it's an inherent character-building good, to engage in competitive sport, is a lie, as far as I'm concerned. I am not saying that sports can't be fun and can't build community and all of that, okay? That's true. I think those are real arguments for sport, and that's what I love about sport. But the kind of competitive sport systems we have constructed in countries like Canada and the United States are not that, in my opinion. They're doing something different, right? They're training people to be good capitalist subjects who are capable of moving on to high-performance sport and internalizing imperatives of competition and domination and the instrumentalization of their bodies, right? And all of that to me is deeply toxic and it's part of youth sport. So I just like, like, if we're having a conversation about youth sport and like whether it's good in the pandemic, I mean, like that's a way in which youth sport for me is never good. And that's not even getting into the kind of vicarious piece with the, with the way in which like parents, right? Channel their own hopes and dreams into their own children. Like we talk on the show about how fans do that to athletes, right? And we, we consider that to be. Um, a deeply harmful and antisocial type of behavior? Well, how about when a parent does it to their own kid, right? Which is a pervasive dynamic in youth sport. Um, I mean, think of how damaging and essentially abusive that is to the kids who go through that process. That absolutely cannot be healthy. Um, So, like, there's a lot to think about in terms of how healthy youth sport is, is what I'm trying to say.
2: Now, now, like... The the last thing on this note is like that I we haven't really touched on is like you've brought up the competitive nature. And I think that sports, youth sports in particular are massively emotional spaces. And like, we have all seen the pictures and videos of people crowded at parks and beaches and everyone like going in a moral panic about how this is going to spread this disease. Can any of us imagine a field of 10 to 10, 10 to 12 soccer pitches and people maintaining physical distancing in these like emotional spaces. Can we imagine parents not like yelling at each other and getting in each other's like faces at, at times like the the opening youth sport is opening these spaces to like actual spread of the disease beyond the, I, I I'm with you with like the competitive stuff, but like the, the real threat right now at this moment is, like, spreading this disease. And I don't think it's actually possible to do. It is, act, like, practically impossible. Who's going like, to, like, enforce physical distancing? How, like, when parents yell at each other or when, when, like, two, like, athletes get into it on the field and, like, they start pushing each other. And who knows? Like, it's, it's spreading this disease, period.
1: Well, and right and to, to come to compete in most of these sports, it requires some kind of contact or if not contact, then at least like even swimming, which isn't actually contact like practicing. No, it's not, you're not going to have a situation where there are two people per lane. That's not possible. And, and yeah, what about soccer? What about, yeah, obviously football, right? What about all these different sports where like you absolutely, you have to be in close contact and they have to be in more contact than the parents. Yeah. Um. Spitting is
2: like part of the game. Like pitchers spit on their hands and then they touch the ball and then they throw the ball. Somebody hits it to the shortstop who touches it with their bare hands, throws it the first, they pick it up, touch it with their bare hands. And then right after they're wiping sweat off their face, it's literally impossible.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, listen. Okay, we got we got to move. Up. That was a good question. A good question. Thank you for those questions because obviously we had a lot to say on that topic. Um, and by the way, if we don't get, to, I mean, you know, we're just we're this
2: is the first time we've done this. We're learning on the fly yeah. here. We may not get all to all your we, questions. You know, we might we might edit some stuff out of what we're talking just because you know maybe we would go on some rambling.
0: Yeah, we'll see how this goes. But just just you know, we're gonna revisit these themes. Like we we are seeing your questions, and, and so we we know but we need to revisit these topics. So if if we don't fully get to it today, just an FYI, um, we're not gonna forget about these questions because they're great ones. So the next one um, we have here is from um, Pallavi Patapati via Twitter. How are elite disabled athletes faring through COVID-19? I asked not only as a historian interested in the Paralympics and other disability sports events, but as someone following the news, the US Open has cut wheelchair tennis events I'm thinking about the larger implications they, this may have on or reflects on elite athletics's view of disabled athletes and how this is coming into sharper focus due to the pandemic, which is a great question. And I just want to add, because after this question, this is, uh, this is not, um, the question was perfect in its time. It turns out that, um, in fact, the U.S. Open did, because of the outrage of the athletes affected, the U.S. Open actually reversed their decision. Um, so they have included um, wheelchair tennis events in, in whatever way the actual U.S. Open is going to be able to proceed, right? Which to a certain extent is still a question mark. Like Everything is a question mark, but I think it will proceed in a commensurate way to the, um, the other events at the U.S. Open. So just a, that's just a point of clarification on that.
2: Uh, thoughts here? Johanna, do you want to go first on this one?
1: Yeah, I mean, I admit this is not sort of in my in my wheelhouse, so but I'll take a stab at it. I mean, I, I think it's clear even even from the fact that the US Open initially cut the events, right? So, so they reversed th- thanks to sort of athlete activism, right? So like again, huge kudos to athletes for speaking out about this, especially um athletes with disabilities who have already been sort of minoritized, you know, with multiple layers. But I think it sort of shows how quickly, um, disability sports are, how, how quickly they're on the chopping block and how easy it, it seems for us open and other sports organizations to cut them. Um, thinking that either they're not valued or they don't have the space for them or the money of them or whatever, and that they cut them obviously over, um, over non-disabled sports. Um, I thought one thing that was interesting, and sorry if I'm taking what anybody else is gonna be saying, um, but one article that I think, Nathan, you found um, that's called COVID-19 lockdown and disability sport with disability in brackets. Um, One thing that was really interesting that it noted was that um, individual, and this is about disability sport in the UK since the lockdown. And one thing that it sort of highlighted was that individuals at home have sort of been really adept at sort of adapting to being at home and being locked down and sort of figuring out what kind of tools could they use at home, such as like pots and pans and things like that. And they were also kind of getting advice. They were, they were getting some advice from like their sports bodies and from YouTube and stuff. But again, like the impetus is on is for individuals to sort of figure out how, how to kind of solve the situation. It's not necessarily being led from above. Um, And so, again, it's sort of forcing, it it further reinforces the sort of individual aspect of sport, um, right, that is sort of pull yourself up by your bootstraps, figure it out, then you will succeed and be um, sort of successful in life at large. Um, But I I just kind of thought that was interesting.
2: Yeah, I think this is like a a wonderful question because like the the history of disability studies as a field and, and has, has largely been a history of viewing disability through the lens of what my close colleague, Jeff Preston calls the, the quote unquote normate subject or the, or the, the, the subject that is, uh, 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 approached as like, um, able-bodied, able to do things all like, that's the, the history of, of disability is like, we, we understand that through our own kind of lens. And this results in the continued marginalization of disabled people. And I think that like the the sharpness of this question actually is, is the fact that this moment is bringing that to the fore, is bringing like we are seeing yet another example of the continued marginalization of disabled people during this. Like those are the first sports to go. Those are the first... Sports that we will kind of throw off to the side, and we will make sure that other elite sports can operate and like I love the fact that like the u s open has changed their tune um to to not do that, and that the activism that that led to that is amazing because like I think we have to reimagine sport as an entire thing in society where accessibility is at the fore. Where accessibility is at the forefront, not ever viewed as an afterthought, not something to um, put off to the side, to not care about, to not put resources in, to not fund, to cut first so that the other sports can happen. And I think if anything is to come out of COVID-19 and this pandemic, if that's one thing in the sport world where we continue to put resources, continue to reimagine sport as not being this like ableist thing, which like, I think we'd all agree in, in this in this, on this podcast, like sport is a very ableist enterprise um, for the most part, particularly professional sport and particularly just elite sport in general. But if we can reimagine sport and ways in which we can, um, enable spaces and put resources into um sports uh with accessibility in mind i think that would be like a massively um beneficial thing for sport in general
0: yeah that's great both of you that's that's beautifully put i'm not going to add too much to it because i think you you really covered um sort of my thoughts because like johanna said i i don't feel myself to be um an expert in this area uh and i think that derek you really you you i think covered um a lot of important ground there uh, and ground that we need to cover more as you point out on this show uh but my last thought maybe is just because of the kind of postscript to that u.s open stories it's just one thing we can take away um in terms of the sort of this question of relationship between um disability sport and, and um sort of normate sport as you put it derek um so the individual who was advocating this case was Dylan Alcott. Um, and Dylan Alcott, the uh, the athlete who uh, spoke and tweeted about the issue and, and really led the charge to rever- have the decision reversed, in the aftermath, speaking about it, he said, um, this is quoting from a Sporting News article, Alcott also paid tribute to Grand Slam winners Andy Murray and Roger Federer for lending their voices to the issue. Quote, also a special big thanks to Andy Murray, who led the charge with help from Roger Federer and a bunch of top 20 men's and women's players who lobbied internally to help get us there. Um, so all I want to say that I'm not trying to um, disproportionately sort of reward those players in the latter group. Um, clearly, Dylan Alcott is responsible principally for what happened but all I want to highlight there is the solidarity piece, right? Um, It's great to see that solidarity, that solidarity, like in all these sort of fronts of justice and inequality, right? Solidarity is an essential tool for pushing for meaningful change that goes beyond kind of top down reform, right? People need, labor needs to work together, right? To demand and force change. That's how it happens. And in this case, you know, there's a, Folks like Andy Murray and Roger Federer have more power than an athlete like Dylan Alcott. Um, and it is incumbent upon them to use their power then in that situation to leverage it towards justice. And it's nice to see it happen here. So I, I hope that that could be uh, precedent setting in some sense. All right, um, moving to our next question. And I have to say, I like this one. Um, our our ever ingest friend, um, Adam Vilman or at Crappy Oats on Twitter of the Southpaws pod. Uh, check out Southpaws pod. They do um, some very irreverent and political work on sports. That's what their pod's all about. I've been on the show a couple times, uh, and they're, they're doing great work there. Um, so Adam uh, asks, should I go to grad school or should I move into the woods? <laughs> Which I honestly... <laughs> May have been my favorite question of the day. Uh, so I'm going to take this very seriously, but uh, I'll, I'll pass it on to you two first.
1: Yeah. So uh, so I have to uh, be fully transparent with listeners. When when I saw this question on our sheet, I said, are we answering this? I'm 100% down to have a real discussion about grad school, LOL. <laughs> Just because I have so many strong feelings about it. Um, and I also, the move into the wood things uh, reminded me of Ron Swanson and we're on like a perpetual uh, sort of parks and rec Uh, binge in our house. So I loved that reference. Um, I guess for me, like Derek, as someone who went to grad school, managed to get a tenure track job, I would say almost move into the woods. The only reason why I would say maybe go to grad school is if that's the only, is, is this, I know some people view grad school, if they're able to get like a five plus year funding package and health insurance, they see that as some form of stability um, especially if they have not been able to sort of pay off their school loans um, or, for, or, 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 or so sort of support their family or whatever it is. If for some people, depending on, on sort of where they are in life, what their independent situations are, where they live in the U.S., um, relative, and how that compares to the stipend that they're getting, I know for some people it really can be um, something that it financially stable and really is like a, re- a relief in that respect. Um, but I would say... I don't know. I I know I personally came out of grad school kind of scarred. And I just think I think kind of similar to the sport world that it needs to be completely restructured. Um, I think that Ph.D. training or, or even master's training in a lot of places is really fraught. And is not supportive, similar to sport, actually, and that, you know, you don't necessarily have a coach, but you may have an advisor or a mentor or a professor in your committee or whoever who can sort of similarly treat you in sort of emotionally and mentally abusive ways. Um, but then there are also, you know, the, the the chances of even getting a job are so slim. Um, so I'm clearly taking this question very seriously. So I think just like, think carefully about your options, maybe wait a few years, see if you can make some money and see if this is something you really want to do.
2: Yeah, we, we had Max Alvarez from the working, um, working people podcast, um, on the show. And if you are considering grad school, go listen to that show, to that episode. I don't know what number it is off the top of my head. Um, but Go listen to that because um, Max's take on grad school and about the the labor of grad school and about the payoffs is better than I think any of us can offer you in general. It was such a poignant and sharp analysis of um, capitalist higher education um, and and, it's real. Like the issues associated with grad school are like they're very real. There's far too many people in going to grad school. There are far too few jobs that will pay off Relevant to your grad school, um, so like going to grad school, like schooling is good. Like like if you think that like education is great, um, I, I'm a huge fan of of education and and developing critical thinking skills and doing what you want to do in terms of your educational pursuits. But if you're thinking that that at the end of the day something is going to come out of going to grad school, completely relevant to to your work, and then to pay based off of you going to grad school so to get like a tenure track job that shouldn't be the goal that should almost never be the goal like i'm lucky and so 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 grateful and also privileged to be able to have a tenure track job like johanna but it is like that's that's increasingly uh uh the, the chances of that happening are increasingly slim, and those things need to be thought of before you even think about grad school. Yeah,
1: well, yeah. Let me add. I mean, I mean, getting a tenure track job is like winning the lottery. Um, I know when I got my job, that was in what was this? 2018, I think. Oh yeah, no, 2019, and and that was before. No, sorry, 2018. That was and that was the be, the best year in like three years, and then the year yeah. after. Like this, this current year, it dropped off. And that was before the pandemic. So and there will be no market. There next will be year. no market. Yeah. Yeah. So just
0: absolutely. And if you think they were taking the question seriously, wait till you hear what I have to say on this. Um, because, <laughs> so first of all, let me say, I can't help you on the woods piece. Um, I, have very, I have very few skills, uh, sadly. Um, <laughs> I thought and, you took your daughter to the woods every day. Well, yeah, not, not to live. <laughs> Put it that way um so yeah i can like can walk i can walk through the woods but i can't actually survive in the woods um so you know let me, let me say that uh, I, I suspect you adam have more skills than i do in that respect but as as johanna and derek and max have all said about grad school uh, i'm not saying anything new there except i just want to underline the, the current grad school system is just fundamentally exploitation Right? It's another site of exploitation. I think the analogy to sport was good and that we're talking about those themes. I mean, Boston University right now is sending their grad students, compelling their grad students to go face-to-face in a way that they won't compel their faculty to right now, just to give people yeah. a heads up on the attitude that these institutions have to graduate students. They are the most disposable, exploitable force of la- explo- exploitable um, component of the institution's labor force. They are subjected to extremely difficult working conditions that make it exceptionally difficult for them to do the work. Like the, the, the work that their students are supposed to be doing is the work of right, knowledge production and learning how to be an academic, et cetera, for jobs, as has been pointed out, don't even exist now. Um, and then along the way, right, they have to do the grunt work of the teaching that um, faculty have to do. And at large colleges, that means, you know, you have teaching assistants who are doing the vast majority of the grading, who are often doing a significant portion of the teaching, right? They have a certain number of hours. They're ostensibly supposed to work. Those hours never correlate the actual demands of the job. They take those jobs seriously. Um, so it is very trying experience. I, I think, Johanna, you did a great job of pointing to the emotional harm um, that people experience along the way. Uh, and there were all kind, those are absolutely intersected by race and gender and, and class, as well as ability, yeah. et cetera, in very profound ways that I have not experienced myself. Those were not my experiences, but they are absolutely ubiquitous experiences for people who are marginalized in all sorts of different ways. Um, so in other words, it's a deeply traumatic space. I, I've said before, I have wonderful, wonderful colleagues that I work with uh, in a writing program at Duke. The majority of those colleagues have, they ended up getting it, not a tenure track job, but a pretty stable job that was very difficult to get. Um, And their stories are not happy stories for the most part. The grad school stories, even the successful grad school stories are very typically sad stories. Um, And then the last thing, here's the last thing I want to say that was like kind of the bleakest thing. I want to go even further and say, as faculty, we need to take serious at this point, our complicity. Folks who are working involved with graduate programs, right? I mean, those individuals' jobs are contingent on kind of luring, seducing people to come to these graduate programs and have these experiences. Um, And their ability to have a tenure-track position is predicated on the existence of those graduate programs being staffless students. Um, And their working conditions in terms of the amount of grading they have to do and everything else is, again,
2: subsidized by graduate labor. And we have to take that seriously. Um, and the army of precarious non-graduate, exactly. n- non-graduate level uh, teaching going on, like precarious absolutely. work contract instructors that, that we as faculty, full-time faculty, absolutely depend on. Like without that, no university in, that I can think of would, would be able to operate. Mm-hmm. That's right. So all that One, said, yeah, go ahead, Joanne.
1: Oh, say so one more thing that I'll add to kind of throw it on the pile is that, um, Nathan, you sort of mentioned that um, all the various ways that universities discriminate against essentially non, non-white non men, but just non-white people in general. And this really excellent book that I really highly recommend, I just read it this spring. I, w- I should have read it my first semester in grad school. Um, it's called, it's by uh, historian Craig Stephen Wilder. It's called Ebony and Ivy race, slavery, okay. and the troubled history of America's universities. And it shows all of the ways that the foundations of our universities were firmly, firmly entrenched in slavery and white supremacy. And mm-hmm. it, like I said, I, I was like ashamed that I hadn't read it earlier. And, and in terms of like the complicity aspect. It's really something we all need to deeply think about. Um, So just to kind of throw that in there, I really highly recommend it to anybody who's thinking of kind of getting into this field, even if you don't think you want a tenure track job. um, I just think, you know, you'd still be a graduate student, still be teaching courses for the university. Um, But I think just kind of understanding where our knowledge base comes from, how we're taught, why we're taught the way we are. um, I really highly recommend it.
0: Maybe a little bit on this question a little bit quickly, but it's great. Derek, first of all, uh, can you, I, w- I want you to play a clip for our listeners here. Just a brief clip to contextualize yep. this.
2: Call it. Hey, listen, listen. Call it. Huh? Call it. You're going to beat this guy, Max. We got this. You're going to beat this guy. Listen, call we got- it. No, listen. Bob god. No, we got this, Max. Okay? Stop it. Stop, it. Stop it. We got this. They okay, Breathe. Okay? Catch your breath. No. We're going to beat this guy. Call Keep it in her feet. You're going to clinch. No,
0: call, it. call, it. call, it. call it. Are
2: You sure you're going lose it, Max? Yeah.
0: We got I don't this, want man. to be a people. No, we got this, Max. No, You're a champion. I don't have it. You're a champion? Stop it. I don't no, have stop it. Stop it. You're a f- champion. Structions. You're a f- champion. We're going to yeah, finish this round on top of him and move for the decision. Structions. Okay? Get on top of him. Out wrestling. We got this. To
1: you, you can't. Head you head want to fight or
0: not? He wants to call it. So, having listened to this, we have a question from Matthew Masuchi. We appreciate this question. It says, I'd be interested in your take on this, on this clip. So much to unpack here. And uh, this is of Max Roshkop. I think he made $12,000 for this fight. Can
2: I, can I jump in here? Yes. So, so this clip is about a minute long in total, and it's taken between rounds two and three of last week's. So it's, uh, I think, the 20th, June 20th. Um, last week's ESPN, or UFC on ESPN opening fight between MASH, Max Roshkoff, and Austin Hubbard. In the video, Roshkoff was sitting sitting down um, in between rounds waiting for the third round to start and kept telling his coach, um, Robert Drysdale, um, that he is done and, and he just didn't have it. He asked Drysdale to quote-unquote call it uh, and his coach kept saying, we got this, champ, we got this. Roshkoff would repeat, call it. And his coach would repeat, we got this, champ, Don't, and then... Roshkoff, same response. And and it went on and on for about a minute. Um, and it's important to contextualize this just a little bit. Roshkoff took this fight on less than a week's notice. Um, he's He'd been overall pretty successful as an MMA um, athlete. I'm not an MMA fan, so I'm not in- incredibly familiar. Um, and he made a total of 15500 for the fight. Um, so... I think it's important to con- conceptualize that he took this at the at the, the last minute, um, and then had to go through sort of this moment of reconciling between rounds. Um, and he was repeatedly pushed by his coach um, to to continue on, and he just stayed adamant. Call it, call it. Eventually, um, the ref called it before the the third round began. I mean, look, I'll just I'll
0: just start briefly by saying, um, you know, I, for me. It's it's disgusting. I I don't I don't watch MMA either. I find the violence um, really difficult for me to swallow. Same with boxing. Not everyone feels that way, and I'm not going to be. I mean, judgmental about that. I you know I've you know watched most of my life watch football, and I'm starting to feel the same way about football. But for a long time I didn't, and I don't think it's like really meaningful to draw a distinction there. So I'm not trying to be judgmental about that. Um, but I mean, basically, I view this kind of violent sport. Through a very similar lens to how I would unpack football, which is to really, I think that what this is begging us to think about is the question of consent, right? I mean, we have the question of consent in terms of like, is he actually consenting to even do this in this moment, right? And obviously, the answer is clearly no. I mean, no one's questioning that. Although, if you go through the Twitter replies, there are a lot of people out there being like, "This is a, his corner is doing a great job. Actually, that's what he's supposed right. to do. He's supposed to build his fighter up. That's what he's he's supposed to." Uh. Fuck. Right. I mean, look, I don't, I can't stomach any of that. I don't buy that for a second. I mean, like we have to take consent at face value. If a person whose body is being subjected to brutality as their own occupation is telling you, I'm not willing to take it anymore, they must stop. I mean, that's, that's a basic given. But like the broaden the question of consent, because that's what we're really talking about here as well. There's also the question of, right? Like Derek, you, you did a great job of pointing this out. Why does he take this fight in the first place? Right. That's a question of consent. What are the structural conditions that made it necessary for him? right? To, to go to this kind of work in the first place. And that's the question I ask with football as well, right? And we see so often how it's racialized and classed. Who are the people in our society who are invited to do this kind of sport, right? A sport that is so blatantly harmful to the body. Um, and I think it's, it's certainly not a coincidence that we see people of a lower socioeconomic status Drawn into these occupations because they are avenues for opportunity. Again, they are not dupes. This is just an avenue for opportunity, and it makes sense to take it. And I think that we can't understand the whole enterprise without thinking about it in those terms, because it's like the system that we have cons- that we live within kind of demands that certain people subject themselves to this kind of spectacular harm. And for me, I find that absolutely loathsome. And it's just when I watch something like an MMA fight, it's just all I can think about. Right, the blood is just there in front of you.
2: Yeah, and. T- to contextualize it just a little bit further, like uh, like I I watched a couple of clips of Roshkoff after the fight um, and in interviews that he was giving, um, and he like has admittedly been through a ton in his life. Like he had a violent childhood, um, issues with his um, parents, and a variety of other hardships. And apparently, his manager Brian Butler was like really pushing for the UFC to to give Roshkov like this big opportunity. So there were like massive pressures for him to take the fight in the first place. Um and like to add to that, like a lot of people on Twitter are like bashing the coach. Um and I and I, which I think is fair, um, obviously. Like, the, the issue of consent was br- you brought up. Like, obviously, it's fair to to understand the coach was, like, not recognizing that he was not consenting in the moment. But if you listen to Roshkoff after, he has, like, nothing but great things to say about his coach. And, like, apparently, they're massively close friends. Um, and I'm not sure it's totally fair to blame solely the coach on this. Because to me, this is a much, much bigger issue in sport and in culture in general. It's about hegemonic masculinity, it's about toxic masculinity, and the same cultural aspects that cause people to risk everything for the very possibility, the bleak possibility of the American dream, despite all of the negative implications it has on mental and physical health. To me, like what this case shows is actually or should be a condemnation of our entire approach to labor and to mental and physical health of athletes. The sacrifice um, is is everything. And that health is to be sacrificed by athletic laborers to serve our needs as an audience. So the fact that both of these people, like both Roshkoff and his coach, were like mocked and criticized on Twitter after the event is like not surprising. And it's absolutely sad. Like, the fact like it, it, it just it's shocking to me that these people will be kind of demonized and dragged on Twitter for like calling quits um, and that he like for some reason Roshkoff now has to like be given another chance by the USC as if he's done something wrong. That's really that's really messed up. And there's other athletes even Dan Hooker is another MMA athlete. And he came out and said like not too sure this is the sport for you Roshkoff. And that's exactly the problem. Like that is the exact problem, the structural problem we have in violent sports, particularly, but in sports in general.
1: So I think the, I think, no, I think excellent points that both of you made. And I think the only kind of two things that I'll add is, and I guess coming from, coming from someone who was a coach. And again, it was like, as I said, in my episode, it was very, you know, I coached children. It was very sort of low level and that was on purpose. I always just wanted to to work with little kids. Um, but there is, It's not like the, the, you know, it's not like the oath that doctors take, but I do think as a coach, like your fundamental approach should be like thinking about the health and well being of your athlete. And obviously that gets blurred as athletes get older. And this is not to say that he, that the, that the athlete here did not have the agency to say yes or no, that he could have just said no from the beginning and, and all this other stuff. And he certainly is obviously contributing to it based on his statements at the end, um, but, I, and I think it's more complicated once you are working with coaches and people who are more your friends and your family than if you have someone who's sort of outside of them sometimes in some cases, though, having, you know, an authority figure who's outside of your family can kind of um, silo you and that can be really negative in its own way. Um, but I just, I just, I, yeah, I just, you know, from a coach's perspective, I, I get that like the athlete is absolutely complicit in this, um, hegemonic masculinity, but I just, you know from a coach's perspective i just you know it's really disgusting um and then of course you have the coach who's wearing the mask and the athlete who's not so it just like reinforces like whose life is really at danger here right who is actually risking everything um and I just think I just think that the image it, it, you should really look up the the image if it's something you can stomach, I understand if you can't, but if it's something that you that you think that you can, it's a really, really striking image about whose body is being um sort of manipulated and 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 um experiencing violence here and whose is not
0: yeah, okay, great well, listen we we're trying squeak in a couple more questions here, so this one is another topic yeah. we haven't had a chance to engage yet um and it's are some great questions from uh, jared strange on twitter um he says i have been keeping a close eye on the elite european soccer leagues as they resume play from a performance perspective i'm thinking about what it means for players leagues and fans to quote play on and play along in these circumstances for example to what degree are the parties involved just playing along with health protocols until they can resume the real business Notice how playing on requires players and staff all keep their distance up to a point. And what might that signal to everyone else? Let's start with that. There's a second question that's associated with it. Um, this, is a, this is a really a, a, a lovely question, uh, well, really beautifully constructed. So I don't want to kind of break up the flow, but we're going to remember that play on, playing along distinction. But uh, who wants to start with this first part?
1: I mean, I think to what degree are they just playing along? I mean, of course, I think they're playing along. i mean i I guess i do I don't think that they're i mean, we all know that 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 the teams and the coaches and the staff and the national governing bodies that they're not actually taking it as seriously as they should be because of their priorities, right Their priorities are to make money, priorities are to um ensure with olympic sports that you know their athletes will be able to stay in shape so they can win olympic medals next year you know or they're making dollars for the university or whatever it is or 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 i shouldn't say for the university but encouraging donors to donate money to the university um so i would just say full on they're just playing along um and that and, and in terms of what that signals to everyone else well not everyone else sees it as these parties are just playing along so uh, a lot of them see, oh, well, look at these teams, the EPL, they're playing again. Everything must be okay. Oh, and look at Europe has had more success um, with lockdown and sort of reducing the case loads than the U.S., so therefore it must be okay. Um, but that's, that's, that's still not the case. Um, and, but of course, they're not actually, they're not being transparent about what their motives are. So of course, that's why people are not looking to see what the motives are.
2: I, so my biggest gripe, and it's, I, I'm going to bring it back to the US a little bit. Um, I, like, I've been watching European soccer. That's one thing that I can't stop. I can't wa- not watch EPL. Liverpool just won um, the, the EPL. So like that, I'll get to that. But my biggest gripe Um, probably across the board is that every single league has decided how they will return in terms of format without finalizing any plans for health protocols before they get their athletes to agree. So we're hearing like, um, that the NBA and all and MLB and, and even EPL and the Bundesliga, when they all like decide that they're going to come back, the first thing they decide on is format. We're going to play neutral site. We're going to like play in this one geographic location. We're going to have these sites or whatever before they finalize any plans for health protocols and how they are actually going to protect their athletes. And to me, like what kind of message does this send? Like, they give the whole, yeah, we'll be physically distant. We'll ensure that everyone's safe and tested routine. But they're asking everyone to commit to returning without even telling them exactly how they will be safe. To me, that sends the message that these athletes are dollar signs. They're not people. First thing is they get them in the door playing again, and we'll deal with the health stuff later. That will come after. Like, look at the NBA. Adam Silver keeps saying that he's going to, like, Look at the caseloads in Florida and Orlando, which is where they uh, plan to return. But like, dude, cases are surging and he has not said a single thing about canceling. They're still fully going. The plan is still there and they still don't know exactly how they're going to do it. And I give like kudos to guys like Avery Bradley who are just like pulling themselves out, saying like, nah, I don't know how you're going to do it. I'm out of it for whatever reason. And to me, there's always going to be a risk. We're in a pandemic. There's always going to be a risk. Athletic labor, laborers are going to get infected. If that risk is there and athletes want to do it, that power is theirs. Like they can do whatever they want. It's when it becomes forced, when athletes have to choose between their paycheck and playing. And in cases like the MLB, when they're like not even being compensated for the risk that they are taking that is when I have a big issue um, with all of this.
0: Totally. And that's, that's exactly, I, I read the signaling in, the, in exactly the same way that this kind of goes back to what we started with that question of the sort of social construction of health, right. In this moment. Uh, and the way in which this is representing essentially to society, it's broadcasting to society that safe protocols exist, that regular life can, can recommence. Um, and so yeah, I mean it's, it's sending a really powerful message that we can all kind of play along with a reopening of society, even if that has no actual bearing, uh, if that has no actual relationship with the the state of health in our societies. Um, so yeah, and that, that was a great question. And so the second half of the question continues in regards to Black Lives Matter. Does the uncommon coordination of embodied protests and BLM branding indicate a major turning point in the way the sport uh, again uh, EPL or European soccer handles racism or is it more of the same quote playing along indicative of corporate activism
2: what do you think i i think it is like especially when you think of the EPL um so so for listeners who don't know like all EPL players have black lives matter where they're um embroidered on their jerseys uh, or kits where their name would have been and like especially in association football like the history of overt racism in that sport is like well documented not only systemically but overtly like that is one of the worst sports um that i can think of when it comes to Um, Racial discrimination and racism Um, You can think of like Mario Balatali and like players Who've had like bananas Thrown at them like terrible things That have had happened in that sport Particularly that like when you see That um, when you see Like leagues like the, the EPL Doing that it Screams playing along and it screams Corporate activism it screams like This is the moment where we have to do something Because if we don't Um we will like be on the wrong side of history they're already on the wrong side of history they've they've been on the wrong side of history for for decades centuries that is a a sport that is riddled with with racism and and discrimination of a variety of kinds like the say no to racism campaign from fifa that didn't come because like they like they didn't have a problem with racism in that sport and this has been long brewing. Um I hope it is indicative of something more than corporate activism. Um but the pessimist in me thinks no, it is simply a branding technique.
1: So um I think one thing that I would like to bring up and this doesn't really answer the question um but I was kind of thinking it would, it, I would be interested to sort of find out more about and it would be great if we could bring someone on to talk about this. You know, how does, how do I say this? So, how is this playing out in cities such as like Bristol, cities where there are really strong Afro European, like Afro British or Afro, you know, Afro uh, Caribbean British, whatever communities that are really strong? And these cities have really, really strong, unfortunate, strong um, sort of foundations in colonialism, in the slave trade. And so these statues have been coming down, and this is sort of, Um, I'm a historian, so I've been very interested in how statues have been coming down across the U.S., Um, but there have been very parallel things happening in Europe, famously in Bristol first, but also in other places and in places like Germany, where everyone raves about Germany as being sort of the the example of how a country can deal with its racist past. Well, that's only with regards to the Holocaust. Um, when actually Germany has this, Germany has a super long and awful history of colonialism and genocide in Africa before the Holocaust, um, around the turn of the century. And that is something there are still colonial era, uh, colonialist statues all over Germany, um, that people are not tearing down, that people are not questioning, um, and so I'd be interested sort of in these cities that have these strong colonial and slave and colonial slave genocide ties, sort of how fans, if at all, how they're sort of seeing what the teams are doing versus what the league is doing and whether there are communities that are sort of calling out this um, hypocrisy or not. Um, but this is something that I, I, I really would love to learn more about. Um, but I would I would argue that it is definitely more about playing along um, and now I'd also say that, you know, Derek, you mentioned that, you know, teams and like coaches don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And that phrase is thrown around all the time. And it is such a terrible phrase because it just points out, right. it's, it points out that people only care how future generations are going to perceive them. That they're not actually motivated by altruistic ideas about anti-racism and rooting out white supremacy, right? That you're only caring about image and the brand. Um, so apps, even, you know, every time, like we don't want our team to be on the wrong side of history. You're not actually saying that you support your black athletes, um, perspectives. You're absolutely not. So that's sort of my three cents on the issue.
0: That's great stuff. I- I'm not even going to add any more to that. Cause I think you both, you both covered that beautifully. Uh, and we are a little bit low on time. I'm going to say this is, so we had a couple questions sort of about scholarship and sociology of sport li- literature uh, and question about um, a pedagogical matter. We are definitely going to address those things moving forward in future shows. Um, we are hoping to have, we're planning to have a pedagogy focused episode that the three of us are going to do. Um, so, you know, we're going to, just so everyone is clear, we're going to dive much deeper into that. But I also feel bad because we have from Mark Beattie, uh via email, a question about, uh, what you recommend for reading slash course content for a primer on sport and labor for mostly first and second year undergrads. I'm planning to devote about three hours of class time to this topic. And the thing is, you know, people are planning their syllabi. I, I don't want to leave Mark hanging here. Um, so Derek, <laughs> Derek, give us some tips here uh, and then we can sign off.
2: Okay. I, you're starting with me. I am teaching a sociology, of sport class. It's a, a class I've delivered um, for a number of years, and I, like I, this isn't just me tooting the horn of someone on this podcast, but I myself use work from the, the very esteemed Nathan Coleman Lamb um, on this very topic. So he's um, written Nathan, you've written a, a ton of amazing work, um, athletic labor and social reproduction piece in the journal uh, Sport and Social Issues, and his book Game Misconduct both focus explicitly on this. And what I do is I couple reading of those pieces or at least one of those pieces with either school, the price of college sport, or the HBO series student athlete um, to give sort of an application style. So they watch the video and they read. But if you're interested in like other people in sport and labor generally and in sociology of sport generally, I would read um Ben Carrington has done a ton of work that's not explicitly on labor but it's more about uh, uh Marxism, cultural studies, and sport, Stanley Aitzson on college um athletic uh, athletic big time Um, college sport and labor and the sort of plantation mentality. I'd be remiss not to mention Harry Edwards and the revolt of the black athlete. Joseph Maguire is written on sport labor and migration. Holly Thorpe and and Kim Toffoletti on the athletic labor of femininity. Richard Southall on the exploitation of big time uh, collegiate athletes. Taylor Branch, who wrote the, 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 a, a very um, awesome book called The Shame of, Co- or the Shame of College Sports, um, and Ellen Starosky, um, who's written on gender equity in the NCAA and wrote a book called um, College Athletes for, um, for Hire, uh, The Evolution and Legacy of the NCAA Amateur Myth. So like couple all those things together, view all those, and there's way more. So if I let, left anyone off, um there are a variety more, but um Nathan, your work is is um at the top of the list um in in this in this case when you're looking at sport and labor.
0: Well, that's very kind, Derek. And uh see listeners can now see why I turned to Derek to answer that question because and <laughs> like I don't know what that was, like two minutes. Uh he gave you
2: entire- on to send me an email and I I'll I'll gladly give you some resources, my syllabus and all that stuff. I'd be happy to uh to share that with any listener.
1: Oh, can I, I'm going to also plug our episode with Dr. Samantha Shepard. And because it cause yeah. you, you talked about video discussion topics, and I really have started to love using podcast episodes in class. Um, and so it would be actually kind of cool if you had them watch maybe one of the films and sort of listen about it because- labor it is all about sport and labor and sport and labor and race and sort of both how it is done poorly and then also how it can be done in like a positive and empowering way. So I think that would actually be really interesting if, if for an intro class, if you don't want to have them do like a ton of reading, um that could also pair really well. And also it would be cool if you use our episodes. So plugging that for for you.
2: And yeah, use the end of sport.
0: We're we're gonna say wave like Johanna because I, I was gonna say <laughs> I, I use um, High Flying Bird, specifically, um, to, to engage with some of these issues. Uh, and I, I haven't used it, but I wanted to use it. I, I Like Derek, I use uh, student athlete. Um, and my institution has access to the film. It's an HBO film. So that was easy for us. That's, and that's why I went down that road, because they had a subscription or whatever that made it accessible for us. Um, but um, otherwise, I would have used High Flying Bird, um, because I think that the themes are really provocative uh, in terms of. Asking the students—that's what I love to do. I love to, you know, give them a scholarly sort of theoretical position, and then—and I think this is kind of where this question is going, right? Have them think it through by applying it in some way to some sort of more popular example, something that's a bit more accessible to them, and allows them to do the work of kind of being the scholar in that sense and thinking through how those ideas play out in a more concrete example. And I, I feel like because High Flying Bird is not hammering you over the head with its sort of argument, but at the same time, it's quite accessible, it makes for a really interesting discussion piece. And there are sort of different things you can get out of it, depending on what kind of readings you pair with it. But for those of us who really like to take a quite Marxist uh, uh, reading of the labor of sport, uh, it definitely uh, pairs pretty neatly. So with that said, folks, thank you thank you for your questions they obviously were questions we found to be uh, particularly stimulating because this podcast went on for probably a lot longer we in, than we intended but I, I hope we didn't put you to sleep uh
2: and we look forward to talking to you again Thank you for listening to another episode of the End of Sport Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please feel to like, share, and leave a review. And as always, you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at Pod.